Church, let's all stand and open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning we are in verses 8 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. This is the Word of God. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that your word is a sharp, double-edged sword that pierces our hearts, our minds, and just puts everything on display, that it challenges us, Lord. And Father, we ask that the power of your Spirit, that you would be amongst us, God. That you would open up your word to us, God. That you uh, would just permeate our hard hearts, God. Lord, you know that above anyone else in this room, I need these truths to be real in my life, first and foremost, God. And Lord, as we just seek this wisdom that Peter is giving us, Lord, may we hold fast to it, Lord. And uh, Father, may our church just display blessing. May our church display these virtues, these characteristics that Peter is speaking of here in our text. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Um, so far through our study, uh, Peter has presented us with a lot, a lot of topics, um, Recently, we have been, we've, we've gone through the instruction that he has given us on how do we should relate to our authority, how we should relate to uh, work, uh, marriage, and today Peter gives us clear instructions on how we are to relate to one another as brothers and sisters, and also how are we re to relate to those in this world, particularly those who don't like us those who uh, want to cause evil to us. And so uh, just looking at these texts, um, I was like, man, it's, I mean, it, it's pretty much straightforward. And, but as I started to unpack, um, I quickly realized there's, there's a lot here. Um, there's a lot of different subjects. Each one of these virtues that, Paul, I mean, that Peter's presenting us, like they could all be their own sermon. So I hope that um, we'll just kind of be able to keep on the main thought here. Um, but the churches that Peter is writing to, these churches in Asia Minor, we got to remember the challenges that they are facing. Uh, they're facing persecution. They're facing suffering for their faith. Um, in response to the godly lives that they are desiring to live, uh, they are met with hatred. They're met with evil. And so, in our text, Peter gives instruction on how to deal with this evil that is coming upon them. But before 
Peter looks outward, before he even talks about the world, um, what Peter does is he looks inward. He looks into the church, and he addresses the brothers and sisters who are fellowshipping together. And he tells them, he tells us how we are to live amongst each other. Peter isn't naive. Um, Peter isn't ignorant to the fact that the church has some issues of its own. Um, there is evil that needs to be dealt with. There is uh, issues that need to be faced inside the church. And so before God's people can properly respond to the world outside of us, we need to learn how to properly deal with each other's sin. And that's why he begins verse 8 here with these words. He says, finally, all of you. He focuses our attention on ourselves, on the church. He said before, hey, here are some commands on how to deal with authority. Here is how to deal with your boss, with your employee, husbands and wives. Here are some ways to deal with the conflicts and sin that arises in your marriage. And now he says, church, people of God, you need to learn how to also deal and do life with a fellow brother and sister. You see, if the church was a perfect, polished people, where love and peace forever dwelt, there would be no need for this instruction. But just like in marriage, where two people come from completely different backgrounds, and then they spend a lifetime together displaying the gospel through forgiveness, submission, love, as they sort out through their sin, through the baggage that they bring into the marriage, so it is in the church. If you have spent any time in any church, you will quickly realize two things. Okay, and this is any church. First of all, people in the church are disappointing. Okay, they will disappoint you. And the second thing that you will learn is that you are also disappointing. You will disappoint others around you. Okay, and no matter how careful you are, it's hard to avoid it. Let's take a look at our church, Shorebrook Church. Just, just quick, a, a little quick overview of, of, of the challenges that we face um, and the, the people that we have amongst ourselves. Um, next month, uh, end of June, we will be celebrating our seven-year anniversary. Okay? And we have obviously not been around for a long time, which means that we do not have things established as certain churches do that have been around for 20, 50, 100 years. Um, stability takes time to develop. It takes time for these living stones to settle into place. It takes time for friendships to be developed, ministries to be established, trust to be built, and kinks to be straightened out. That all takes time, and that all presents challenges to the church. Not only that, but we live in a transient culture. People come, people go. 
most of us, all of us maybe, have some dear friends that we thought are with us here forever that are no longer with us. Okay? That's hard. It takes a toll on the church. We all have seen friends who are community group leaders, um, pastors, team leaders, and active members in, in the church leave for various reasons. We've seen it all happen. And what that means, it gives new people the opportunity to step up to the plate. It gives the opportunity for people to exercise their God-given gifts, and that's really good, but the process of rediscovering who we are, the process of building new relationships starts over and over again. That's kind of how things are in Hawaii. Okay, you can't escape that. And even if we just take a moment and look around us, we will see that most of the people here, even though the church is seven years old, we've known each other for maybe a few months, a few years. There's only a few people here that I have known through the entire seven years of this church. On top of that, we all come from different parts of the country, world. Um, we come from different church backgrounds. How many churches are represented here? Most of you have attended completely different churches in the past five years. Um, we have different family backgrounds, theological backgrounds, okay? All this, all these dynamics are at play here, okay? And it's hard to try to settle the differences between our spouses, yeah? It's hard to figure those differences out. How about a figuring those differences out in a church that is so diverse, a church that has not known each other for so long. And so the question is, how do we continue moving forward with resilience? How do we continue to, and how do we foster and create a culture of friendship and love in the midst of this dynamic situation? How do we do that? And Peter here, he's not ignorant to these challenges, okay? The, the gospel, as it spread through Asia Minor, like people would get saved from all sorts of walks of life. People in the church were different, very different. And so Peter's not ignorant, ignorant to this, and we should not be either. We shouldn't be ignorant to these facts. Let's be honest. We will rub each other the wrong way. We all have our unique quirks that we might not even be aware of that tick and annoy other people. And the question is not if we will disappoint, but the question is when we disappoint one another, how do we deal with that? Here's the thing. Not only is Peter aware of that we might somehow disappoint one another, accidentally maybe, without even meaning it. But Peter is clear that sometimes we will encounter straight up, thought through evil. Verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Even this can happen in the church. Peter is expecting for this to happen, not just outside of the church, but also in the church. It might come through gossip, through slander, criticism, 
condemnation. It might come through ways you haven't even imagined. But in order for us to understand what Peter is calling all of us to this morning, we have to come to an agreement that we all have issues, some of us more than others. We are a dysfunctional family, okay? We have to recognize that in order to move forward towards unity and towards function. So how do we as a church, how do we persevere with resilience, not only in the face of the challenges that come from the outside, but also the challenges that we face from within? How do we begin to foster and create this culture of friendship and love amongst ourselves? Is it even possible? And here, Peter gives us five virtues in verse 8. Kind of like five goals that should take root in our hearts and that should begin to bring fruit in the life of every believer. Okay? These are the five virtues that will help us overcome our differences, um, that will put us on a path towards cultivating true love. In verse 8, we read, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Notice, he doesn't say that, hey, when you face disappointment, when you face problems in the church, you got to run, um, retreat, isolate yourself. No, he doesn't tell that to us. But he gives us these five characteristics that should define us and that should leave us, lead us to a life of blessing. And I just want to take a few moments uh, with you and run through these five characteristics. And the first one uh, that Peter brings to our attention is unity of mind. Okay, he wants us to have unity of mind. And this word literally means, like translated from Greek, it means like-minded, okay? Of, to have the same thinking. That's what it means. And we live in a culture that values thinking differently. We are encouraged uh, to have fresh ideas, uh, to find ways, new ways of doing things. Uh, we are always on the lookout to better and improve our lives with better products, better ideas. Um, and Peter here, he's not telling us that we cannot think for ourselves. He's not calling us to just have this bland, um, just thinking across um, the front to, to, to nobody can stand out. Um, he's not calling us to have the same thinking in every aspect of life. But there is an area where unity of mind and same thinking is a must. There are areas in our life as brothers and sisters where we have to unite and not compromise. Okay? It's an essential ingredient to create a culture of love and friendship. That unity is based not on some sort of abstract things. It's not based on uh, common um, things that we like to eat, but it's based on primary 
and things of primary and first importance. For example, to become a member of this church, we, uh, in the interview, will ask you a series of questions uh, to determine and to see if we are of the same thinking, okay? Um, to see if we align on things of first and primary. And if we do, then the next step is we make a covenant to one another, okay? And um, that is extremely important. If we are going to move on as a church, that, those primary things should become a foundation on which we begin to build. And listen, everyone is welcome in this church. You do not have to agree with us on everything. But we have to understand that in order for us to gravitate towards true unity, we must be of the same thinking when it comes to foundational Christian doctrine. Unity of mind also goes beyond thinking. It means, in a sense, to... Uh, to, to being of the same thing, kind of having the same essence within us. Um, in relation to our faith, it's having the same values, priorities, and goals in our life. That is why a Western Christian can go to the Far East and they will have more in common than the neighbors that they've lived their whole lives with. That's why you can go to the Middle East uh, and be, uh, and be in community with a, with, with a Christian who used to be a Muslim, and you will have more in common with him than he does with his own family. It's a beautiful thing. And there are only a few things that are more despicable than when Christians quarrel about worthless or secondary things. When those worthless things become priority and we quarrel over them. That is a bad witness to the church. Peter says, have unity of mind. Unite on the things of primary importance. Secondly, he tells us to have sympathy. Okay? As a culture, we are drawn towards self-help. We are encouraged constantly to look within ourselves, to try to understand who we are. And we get consumed with trying to figure out all these problems that we are dealing with within ourselves. It seems that everyone is on a journey of self-discovery, rediscovery, to better ourselves. And while it's important to be self-aware so that we would be able to allow the Holy, uh, Holy Spirit to realign us with his word, sympathy is the exact opposite of self-absorption. Okay? Self-absorption is the enemy of sympathy. The danger of being preoccupied with oneself is that it leads to indifference. It leads to hostility towards others. A lot of times we think that sympathy is just having pity on someone who is in trouble or is a victim. That is true. But sympathy is far more than that. It's the ability to put yourself in someone else's place and meet them in their emotions. 
So not only are we to display sympathy to someone who is in pain, who has come, who is in an unfortunate event, but also we are to sympathize with those who are rejoicing, with those who are experiencing success and happiness in life. And when we are preoccupied with self, we are unable to put ourselves in other people's place. And in response to others' joy and success, we can respond with anything but sympathy. All sorts of stuff can come out. Jealousy, strife, condemnation, all sorts of things can come out. In response to others' pain, we can respond indifferently. We just, we just don't care. And Peter warns us, he tells us that a Christian community should strive to display sympathy towards one another in whatever circumstance our brothers and sisters are, that are at. He tells us to meet them there. That's what Jesus said. He calls us to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who weep. So in a self-absorbed world that is constantly growing more and more desensitized towards pain and suffering, sympathy is what will set the church apart and will for sure draw us together. The third virtue or character that Peter brings to us is brotherly love. And a lot of us, we, we struggle with this one. I know I do. I struggle with this one. Particularly because we get confused on who we are to love. Um, we have this inner standard within ourselves, um, and we measure other people on that standard uh, to, to see who is worthy, who is even worthy of our love, who is worthy of our attention, okay? And we might battle with and struggle through some of these questions, like does loving someone who is less than perfect mean that we are approving their actions and their behavior? How do I display genuine love without compromising my convictions? We all deal with these things. We always, we see brothers and sisters who we don't fully agree with, and we struggle with how do we love them? First of all, brotherly love is different than the love that we should have to those who are outside of the church. Just like you have brothers and sisters uh, through biological birth, so it is through your spiritual birth, through your second birth. As you were born again, you are born into a family, the church. And the relation that we have, it comes through the blood of God. It comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, If you have been born into this family, our Father is now God. This is very significant. So brotherly love is directed towards fellow believers. It's not just a random brother you see on the street, okay? It's directed towards your church family, the believer. So as we look to live with one another, we realize that we come from all sorts of backgrounds, all different walks of life. We all have different stories. We are all at different maturity levels. And we need to understand that love is the ingredient 
that will give us the ability to have patience, that will give us the ability to overlook certain things in our brothers and sisters that really, really, really annoy us. Listen, there's a time and place to confront sin. There's a place to confront failure. And imagine how that will be accepted when we approach others, not out of a heart of self-righteous judgment, but out of a heart of sympathy and love. How are words, how much more chance they have to be accepted? And if we have not learned to love our brothers and sisters, how can we even begin to think of loving our neighbor in our community? So often we want to love others on our terms. We have our own standards of who is worthy of our love. But God, he is calling us to love our brothers and sisters on his terms. And what are his terms, church? He loved us while we were still what? Sinners. Christ was not ashamed of us. He loved us at our worst. And it was Christ's love that led us to repentance. Okay? God's love is not a love that turns a blind eye to our sin and accepts our sin. But his love is a love that transforms sinners. And we are called to this same type of love. We are called to both hold our biblical ground, our convictions, and also love those inside and outside of the church unconditionally. Okay, that is why, um, that is why the sinners and the tax collectors loved to be with Jesus. That's why they flogged to Jesus, because he had this radical and scandalous love. He did not compromise on his convictions, and yet he loved them unconditionally. And there are many examples of this in scriptures that we just don't have time to get to this morning, but this is the love that Peter is calling us to. Tender heart. The Greek word that is used here literally means like a good bowel movement. That's what it means. It's an awkward word, okay? Um, it's this feeling that comes from your intestines. Um, it's meant to communicate a deep feeling of compassion that comes from within you, okay? That's what that word, that's what that word means. So when Jesus saw the sick, uh, when he saw the hungry, when he saw the demon-possessed, we read that he was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. Uh, this word, moved with compassion, is the same root word that's used here for tenderheartedness. Okay? It's a kindness, a compassion that is geared towards others who have frailties, who have weaknesses. Maybe they are mentally or physically disabled. Um, it's, it's the elderly that cannot take full care of themselves. It's the widows, the orphans, the poor. God's people are to have a heart of tender compassion for these people. A compassion that moves us from within to action with our gifts and our resources. Christian, our time and money must include 
these people. We are to be tender-hearted. The people of God are to be the front-runners to meet these needs. And lastly, Peter calls us to have a humble mind, to have a humble spirit, to have a humble attitude. In the culture that he spoke to, this was controversial. The Romans looked down on humility. They, they, they saw it as a weakness. It wasn't a virtue. They considered humbleness as low-mindedness. Okay? And this word for humbleness here, if you look at it in Greek, go to Blue Letter Bible, open up 1 Peter uh, 3, 8, and just press on that word and see what it means in Greek. It's not translated as humbleness. It's translated as low-mindedness. Peter, Peter tried to get that point across on purpose. Okay? In our culture, pride and arrogance are also prized. If there is a star, a celebrity, or an athlete who's not walking around with swag, who's not proud or arrogant, they're not a star. Somehow, this idea began to spread into the church. But we cannot, we cannot continue to move to like-mindedness. We cannot, we cannot move towards sympathy and understanding. We cannot move towards brotherly love and tenderheartedness if we are not humble. Pride, it is the first enemy of all virtue. Humility is the way to obtaining what Peter has set before us. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis on pride. Um, almost every theologian will say this, but C.S. Lewis kind of just takes everything, just sums it up. Quote, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the outmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation, every family, since the world began. Okay? Pride is the great sin. It's the mother of all sins. It's it's what leads us to all these different sins, and it can cause misery even in the church. We cannot strive for blessedness. We cannot strive to any of these virtues unless we first demolish the wall, the great armored wall of pride. That is our first enemy. God makes it clear that he opposes the pride, the proud. God calls his church to first and foremost to have a humble attitude, have a humble spirit, have a humble mind as we live with one another. These are the five virtues that Peter puts our attention to. And if we are to strive to foster a culture of friendship, a culture of love, we can do this only if we take the road of genuine humility and love. Just a little side note. Some of us come from healthy families. Okay, we've been loved. 
Our parents gave us everything. Um, we've been protected. But others, they come from places far different. They were abused, manipulated, mistreated in many different ways. The church is where these people should experience the genuine love of God. Love that does not manipulate or seek its own benefit, but the church should be a place where sacrificial love is displayed, and only that will melt and transform hearts. It takes time. Many people will accept our love as they're trying to get something from me. They're trying to manipulate, manipulate me because that's how they grew up. But church, we are to display a sacrificial love towards one another. That is what will transform our hearts. A culture of friendship and love is when we can come closer to one another to expose ourselves, to be fully known and still be accepted and loved and not pushed away. Verse 9, I promise I'm going to go a little quicker now. Um, verse 9 Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. What do you do when you are insulted? What do you do when someone does a crazy evil against you? How do you respond? Do you call your friends to come up with a scheme, with a payback plan? Do you put this evil away in the vault of your long-term memory and wait for the day where you can just get back at them? Here's what God calls us to. Here's how God calls us to repay. He says, bless. But what does it mean to bless? What does it mean to be blessed? It means to have divine goodness and favor upon your life. It's favor and bless it's favor and goodness that can come only from God. That is that's what it means to be blessed. That's what it means to bless others. Okay? We were all dead in our sin. And oh, what divine favor have we received? How we are so blessed. The God of the universe is our Father. Our sin is forever forgiven. His kingdom is our inheritance. Okay? We are blessed, church. It might seem that what Peter is calling us to here is impossible. Wait, you're calling me to wish divine goodness and favor, a favor upon their lives? Like, do you know what they did to me? If only you knew the pain that they caused me. It might seem impossible. But you are able to do the impossible because God has done the impossible for you. Peter says in verse 9, Bless, for to this you were called. He wouldn't be telling us this if it weren't possible. The ability to bless others flows out of our new identity. And our identity dictates our ability. So if you have truly been blessed, 
If you are now a son and daughter of God, then you have the ability to bless even those who cause you evil because that is your calling. That is the calling that God has placed on your life. Okay? It means that you are not desiring evil to those who have caused you evil. It means that you are not doing evil to them. It means that we don't even desire God to do evil to them and smite them. Okay? But to bless means that you desire God to do good to them. It takes a radically transformed heart to genuinely desire that. We have a few examples in scriptures. The first one uh, that I want to bring to you is Acts. We have a story of a, name, a man named Stephen. Uh, Stephen was filled with the Spirit of God. He uh, preached the gospel, and he had some confrontations with uh, uh, the Jewish leaders. And so they set up a plan to revile against him and to cause harm and evil to Stephen. And um, you can read that story. It begins um, in uh, Acts chapter 6, and it goes throughout chapter 7, but I'm just going to read a couple portions of it. We read in uh, Acts 6, 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses. Okay, so we see this uh, reviling, this evil setup they had uh, for, for uh, Stephen. And so skipping down to <clears throat> Acts chapter 7, verse 58, we read, Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he had fallen asleep. And Saul approved his execution. Very few people face the evil that Stephen faced. Very few of us face the slander that he faced. And in the face of evil, what does Stephen do? He blesses them. He pleads with God to have favor on them and not count their sins towards them. That's what Stephen is praying for. And God did hear his prayer. God did have divine favor on this man who approved the execution of Stephen. He had favor on Saul, who, be, who later became the great apostle Paul. How about Jesus? Hanging on the cross, experiencing the pain caused to him by his creation that hates him and despises him. What does he say? In Luke 23, 34, we read, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know what not for they know not what they do. Again, Jesus is blessing those who have caused him evil. He is praying for divine favor upon his enemy. Imagine what the Christian community would look like if we responded to evil and reviling, not by justifying ourselves, not by pointing fingers at their flaws, but by blessing when someone spreads rumors, 
when someone talks gossip, when someone ignores you or gives you the silent treatment, when someone hates you for what you stand for, and in return, you bless them. Not out of spite, but because you genuinely love them. That is powerful. And that is only possible uh, as, we, as we read... Oh, I'm sorry. Jumped ahead of myself. Um, that is possible only when these five virtues are being worked out in our lives. And finally, in verse 10 and through 12, we read, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You want to live a life that you love? You want to see good days? Who doesn't? Apparently, the way we treat people around us has something to do with that. And for some reason, we have people who think they can be jerks, speak deceit, gossip, and do all sorts of evil, and still be accepted and loved by others. It doesn't work that way. You can forget about seeing good days and loving life. Evil, sin, it separates us from community with one another. But even worse, it separates us from God. Not only does our sin and evil separate us uh, from each other and destroys relationships that we have, but look at the last line in verse 12. We read, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Evildoers. Instead of God's favor and instead of God's blessing, you will receive God's wrath. And that is a scary place to be. And now the obvious question is, if the righteous will live to see good days, if they will love life, what about Stephen, uh, who saw very little good days as he was stoned? What about Jesus, who was crucified? He lived only 33 years. What about Peter, who will soon be crucified? How about these Christians who are suffering for their faith. Where are their good days? Well, part of the reason that Peter is writing this letter is to encourage the suffering church and to give them hope. And that hope is that this life is just the beginning. All the days of suffering will be nothing in comparison to the eternal joy and pleasure that the righteous will live to see. Death is the worst harm the enemy can do to us. And we already know that Jesus has defeated death. And what awaits us beyond this life cannot even begin to compare to the best days you can have here. Okay? The righteous will see good days. He will live to love life. He will love life not just for a day, not for a week on a good vacation, not for a month before the next challenge comes into your life, but he will love his life 
for eternity. We've all seen the stickers, no bad days with the two palm trees, yeah? It's not true. We all have bad days here. And we will all, I, I will probably remember the sticker in heaven. I will. Church, a life of blessing, a life that is marked by these five characteristics must begin now. And it must begin and start with us. It must overflow into our marriages, into our families, and it should expand to our church and only then spill out to our neighbors and our community. Peter's words might seem like cute, cute quotes that belong on mugs, okay? Like, these are, these are some nice words that he's telling us. But as we saw, what he is calling us to is radical. It's very radical. I'm, I'm having a hard time to reconcile this in my heart. Like, to thinking of, 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 of certain pain that people have caused me and just blessing them. Honestly, like, I have a hard time doing that. What Peter is calling us to is not cute. It's radical, okay? And are you living this way? Are you able to relate to those around you in this radical way? We are all civilized. We have all learned how to be polite. We know how to be nice, how to say the right stuff, how to hide ourselves behind a smile. Like, we're good at that. But only those who have experienced the tender love of Jesus and are continually experiencing his tender love are able to display sincere love and bless in the face of the worst evil like Stephen and Jesus did. That ability is not human. That ability cannot be mustered up from within. It only comes from God. Romans 5, 5 read, it's possible because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. That ability is divine. It's a blessing. And I have to say this, we all know um, those super Christians, you know, they're those... Um, Christians that all of us know and see, they have this gift of discernment. Um, and they walk around with this gloomy, fierce look, and they are looking for the next screw-up. They are looking for the next person to fall, and uh, that's where they bust out that whip, you know, of self-righteous judgment and condemnation. That is not what God's Word is calling us to. We need to awaken to the truth that in response to our evil, in response to our sin, our deceit, our reviling and hatred against God, Jesus displayed compassion. Jesus showcased his tender love. He had sympathy towards us. He did not deal with us as we deserve but he humbled himself to the point of a shameful death on the cross. The only way we will be able to love and bless others if we go to the source of that love and that blessing. If we look into the face of Jesus, who despite all of our flaws, 
all of our failures, has still loved us. Let that narrative, let that story be the loudest voice in your life. Allow the truth of the gospel to empower you to love and bless those who deserve to be hated, those who deserve to be paid back with evil. Church, this is the way that God is calling us to. This is the only way we'll be able to recon reconcile the differences amongst ourselves. This is the only way that we will be able to love ourse ourselves in this church and our community. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us in darkness, but your word, it shines into the deepest crevices of our hearts. It exposes us, Lord. And Father, it does that not to just leave us there broken and ashamed, but it does that to heal us, to bring life into us, and so that life would be evident in our lives as we go out and love and bless our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, and our community. And Father, may these words, Lord, may these words just, Father, see, sink in deep, first and foremost, in my heart, in my mind. Let this not just be some knowledge, but let this transform into sympathy, into compassion, into a tender heart, into hands that are quick, Father, to meet the needs of brothers and sisters, Lord. Father, we ask that we would be able to forgive one another, that we would be able to run towards each other with love and compassion the way you, Jesus, ran towards us. Father, we pray that this would be active and that this would happen within our midst. In Jesus' name, for the glory of God, amen.